0: chapter 9, starting in verse 8, this is God's word. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and would you not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man... Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind." Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now, this is God's uh, inerrant, infallible word, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you know that you are not the same person that you were when you began your journey in Christ. You know that you've developed into the man or woman of God who you are now. And even though you might still struggle with sins, uh, you have doubts, uh, you have many weaknesses, perhaps more weaknesses uh, that you're conscious of now than ever before in your life. And even though the dangerous toils and snares of the world, the flesh, and even the devil himself at all times surround you, you nevertheless know that you've progressed in some profound ways, and all of it is due. Uh, not to yourself, but to the work of the triune God. Uh, You have victories in Christ. You feel uh, the full assurances of forgiveness, of pardon. Uh, You feel the love of God in your very hearts. You're being transformed, as Paul will say, from one degree of glory into another. You're being transformed into the image of Christ. More and more, you have a heart that beats for the things of Christ, and you have joy in the work of the Holy Spirit upon your life. You know that you've come to where you are now because you are cognizant of the work of sanctification in your life. This, by and large, is what we can recognize uh, with this man, and this is sort of what's going to be the focus of our sermon Tonight, uh, we're coming back to this passage of the healing of the man born blind, and although last time we did kind of a tour de force through the whole of this story, I'd like for us to think of this story yet again with a slightly different emphasis, just with with a a little tweak uh, that was a little different than how we studied this uh, before. Tonight, we're going to be focusing upon what this man says. Throughout the chapter, And we'll be doing this mainly because we can see that there's a development of sorts in his maturity, uh, in this man's understanding, and in some de- degree, even in, in terms of his theology. We can see that he begins at a certain point, and then from then on, this man has a number of statements that he makes to various people throughout the chapter. I think it's ten by my count. And then, of course, he kind of disappears into um, the backdrop. But notice that what he says, in a way, indicates his own development as he's coming into the new realities that are now his. And these uh, sayings and the development that, that, that comes from this man's words is supposed to correspond in some way to the development that should also be found in the Christian life, almost like... Uh, the movie Man of Steel, uh, the Superman movie that uh, came out a number of years ago, there's a, there's a scene in that movie that I, I absolutely love. It actually parallels the comics, uh, that, uh, the history back in the early 19, or late 1930s, where Superman didn't actually have the ability to fly. Now, that's one of his most iconic superpowers that everybody knows him by, Uh, but this one scene in Man of Steel uh, shows Superman, Clark Kent. uh, What is he doing? He doesn't know that he has the ability to fly, and what does he do? He jumps really, really high and lands on the peaks of mountains and destroys them and things like that. And then he eventually grows to realize, wait, he can control himself mid-flight, and he can actually learn how to fly. It actually parallels the... Uh, comic books. Uh, he develops in his abilities. <clears throat> and this is sort of what happens with this guy here. He starts out in the words of Zechariah 4 verse 10, uh, something in the day of small things. Uh, and eventually he hones his words, which eventually brings him to the feet of the Lord whom he worship, And that corresponds to our experience in our development in Christ and our growth in grace As well, And we'll be, Lord willing, with God's help, unpacking this tonight. So the theme of this sermon is written in your bulletin, that the statements of the formerly blind man illustrate his developments in following Jesus Christ. And we can see this through the three main locations throughout this chapter where he speaks to people. That is, his statements to the neighbors, his statements to the Pharisees the first time, and his statements to the Pharisees the second time. We'll be jumping around a little bit. With those last two points. And to start out with his statements to the neighbors, we come uh, to the very first time where he appears in this chapter. The very first time that we see this guy <clears throat> in this chapter, of course, is when he's noticed by Jesus and the disciples. And unlike the last time in the Gospel of John where Jesus heals someone in chapter 5, there's no prior dialogue, there's no interaction, give and take, that Jesus has with this man. Really, he begins by not saying anything, but by being told what to do by the Lord Jesus, whom uh, really the crux of the entire um, passage is found in verse 5, the Lord Jesus who declares himself to be the light of the world. Again, linking it with, the, with, with chapter 8. And so Jesus, being the light of the world, has made it so that he can make it so that this man can receive sight. Light can flood into this guy's eyes for the very first time ever so that he can see. In other words, the first thing that we notice about this man is that he doesn't produce anything. But he's acted upon, he's spoken to in order to produce this man's healing. This man is entirely passive. Uh, Verse 6, Jesus uh, spit on the ground, he makes mud with the saliva, then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. By the way, that word anointed is going to come in handy in a little bit. He anoints the man's eyes with mud, and he says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. You notice that whatever the guy is going to say you know, throughout the rest of the chapter, whatever the guy is going to say from this point on, he only says it because he has been spoken to. He has an encounter with the Lord Jesus, which thereby produces everything that he does and says. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 makes the same argument, actually. He draws an analogy between creation and the Christian life. He says this in verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so what this guy is experiencing here, what this guy is receiving here, is kind of a personalized version of let there be light Uh, that Paul is speaking about and that uh, creation uh, talks about, the same kind of power that creates the entire universe by divine fiat, uh, that is, all God has to say is, let there be, and it is, is the same kind of power that produces the sight of this man and produces the, the same faith that is even in your hearts right now. Every one of us begins our journey in Christ as passive recipients of the things of God in Christ, Even before we even pray the sinner's prayer, that work has been accomplished in us. The one who comes to God is the one who's been made to come to him because in our sin we can't draw near, uh, nor would we if we could. But afterwards, verse 8, after his ability to see, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open?" And look how he answers. The man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And I wash and receive my sight. You can see that there's, in this statement here, there's nothing complex. Uh, there's nothing too involved here. There's nothing that's found here that's, that's, that's too elaborate uh, there's no high-minded thoughts or anything. It's just the retelling uh, of the simple facts of his healing, and really nothing more than that. And matter of fact, in, in the account of the healing and his uh, retelling of the healing, it's virtually identical. Uh, there's nothing uh, complex that's uh, that's uh, given there. It's just uh, actually you could see throughout this entire chapter that Jesus, in this one verse, gives the most raw and the most pure version, the most pure testimony that he gives of his healing throughout the entire chapter. As a matter of fact, it's so raw and it's so elementary and it's so pure and there's such nothing added to it that when he's cross-examined by various people here, verse 12, uh, what does he answer? He answers in ignorance. You know, where is Jesus? Well, I don't know. You could see the elementariness of, of, of his answer. Notice that all this is, is analogous to how your life in Christ started right? First, at first, the follower of Jesus doesn't yet come to grasp the fullness of what they've come into. Uh, We can even project this out to uh, the apostles themselves, Paul the apostle. We know a fair bit of of his life. Even for Paul the apostle, uh, his transformation was not an overnight thing. As a matter of fact, if you read Galatians chapter 1, the first chapter of Galatians, and correlate it with uh, the book of Acts, you start to realize that Paul was a Christian for about 10, perhaps even 14 years before he even goes on his first missionary journey, and this is after he receives a vision of the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. This is after he sees that. He's blinded. Something like scales eventually fall from from his eyes. He takes a 14-year hiatus before he he even goes on his first missionary journey. I mean, nowadays, if anyone has a... A vision of Jesus or a vision of heaven—it's basically obligatory that they have to write it down. It has to be a New York Times bestseller next week because you know you got to kind of get and crank those uh, those things out. When we're infants in Christ, when we're babes in Christ, virtually the only thing that we know is that we're great sinners, uh, but that Jesus is the perfect Savior. Uh, we don't know the ins and outs of the Calvinism Arminianism controversy. Uh, we don't. Know what premillennialism means or amillennialism, anything like uh, like that. We just know that we're loved by Jesus. We just know the basics, and in the Lord's provision, we can certainly develop from from there. We can see this man's first steps in the statements to his neighbors, and secondly, we come to the statements that he gives to the Pharisees for the first time, verses 15 and following. We can rightly assume that, by the way, there's a, uh, something of an interval of time between his statements to his neighbors and friends and his being brought before the Pharisees, uh, here in verse 13, uh, maybe an hour or so, but uh, just as we saw the last time, the Pharisees uh, were fixated on what they assumed were violations of the Sabbath. Uh, again, he, making, making mud was in the same category of kneading dough on the Sabbath and uh, healing of the Man itself is uh, kind of in the category of uh, unnecessary manual labor on the Sabbath. This is doubtless what they're thinking. And so there's already some, something of a bitterness on their part. And, you know, it didn't help that the name Jesus well, was kind of a trigger word for them at this, uh, this point in the Gospel of John. So verse 15, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. Which, if you think about it, it's a different question than was asked in verse 10 from his neighbors. It's a a very slight difference there, but that slightness makes all the difference. Up there in verse 10, the question that his his friends and neighbors gave was from the standpoint of being amazed, being in shock and awe that this guy can see. This question here strikes us as though they're far more interested in the process and the procedure than the miracle itself. They want to know how this event happened. How did he receive his sight? That is, what's his system? What's, what's his method? What, what's his recipe that he is going off of in order to receive his sight? And so he responds with what's actually a rather cursory overview of, of his miracle. Uh, you read the, the verse. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes. Notice he doesn't say he anointed my eyes with mud because uh, this word is, uh, that, that word is, is a lot more specific. He uses a more general term with them. He put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. In the original, uh, the words and how they're formed here indicate that he's a lot more standoffish uh, with them as he was with his neighbors and, and friends. He's more standoffish. Perhaps they're a little bit more intimidating than his neighbors and friends are. He's a little bit more. He speaks in general terms. He doesn't really want to be cross-examined by them because he knows what's going to happen. So he's a little bit more standoffish. He recognizes that these guys are not to be trusted, and this shows something of the development of the man, which has a correlation to the Christian life. He's able to to grow in discernment, right, and he recognizes that not everything that purports to be in service to God is actually in service to God. Uh, there was one time where uh, Corbin and I were in uh, Menards together, everybody loves going to Menards, of course, and he saw a, a guy who was wearing a, a, some sort of Christian t-shirt. I, I didn't see it, but he asked me on the road, on the way home, he said, Dad, I saw a guy who was wearing a Christian t-shirt. If someone wears a Christian t-shirt, does that make them a Christian? And I looked in the rearview mirror and I said, well, son, if I wear a cowboy hat, does that make me a cowboy? Now, thankfully, he said no. Good job, Corbin. (laughs) Excellent excellent job there. As we grow in Christ... We learn how to handle the things of God. We learn how the Word of God functions at some basic level. We learn how to pray. Uh, We're trained, perhaps slowly but surely, how to know how to act and how to know how to react uh, to one another and even under trial. Even though we might fail, even though we might say the wrong things or we don't say the right things, there's at least a handle that we grasp that gives us something of the moorings of the Christian life. The child of God, after being comfortable with their newfound faith, will grow into some familiarity with the things of God. There's a point in the Christian life to where, even though we don't necessarily know a lot about the various ways that people interpret and have a bunch of views on everything that's, uh, that's out there, we at least know of the gospel of grace. We at least know that I'm to love others, I'm to be humble, I'm to be thankful, the triune God is to be worshipped, the triune God is to be glorified, Uh, the church is to be prioritized, Uh, I'm to continue to engaging in the things of God uh, at some sort of regular pace. We come to know those realities and be comfortable with them. We also come to know, on the other hand, that there's beliefs out there and practices that are destructive to the confession of faith. We come to know that there's deleterious or destructive uh, beliefs out there that faith plus works does not equal salvation, for instance. Uh, That the prosperity gospel is not the gospel. That the denial of sin overturns the need for Christ. That to to neglect any of the duties that are required of us will only make us backslide. This is kind of what we can see this man enter into here. And we know that he's becoming familiar with the things of God because of how he answers the Pharisees at the end of the dialogue. Look at verse 17. They said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, that is, Jesus, since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Echoing the very uh, things that the Samaritan woman at the well says in John chapter 4, verse 19. Uh, That is, he's able to kind of put things together. He's able to put one and one or two and two uh, together He's able to see that whatever is descriptive of prophethood is also descriptive of Jesus. Everything that he knows of the prophet matches everything that he knows of Jesus. He can put these together. There's a development going on here, and this development continues to our last point for this evening, verses 24 through 38, the statements to the Pharisees the second time. And as, of course, we come to it again, we can rightly assume that there's another interval of time from the last point to this point here. We're jumping over uh, verses 17 through 24 after the Pharisees uh, speak to the guy's parents. And for the second time, they speak to the man in order to entangle Jesus, this, uh, this, this blind, the formerly blind man uh, into sort of an inner circle dialogue about what they think uh, about Jesus. And thankfully, he's able to wiggle free from this in his answer. Verse 24, they said to him, give glory to God. Now pause there. Joshua says this same thing to Achan in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, chapter 7, verse 19, before Achan is judged and executed. He's told, give glory to God. In other words, get ready, formerly blind man, to fess up, because anything that you say will be used against you. Uh, reading on, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Bam, just like that. It should be an open and closed case. J- just like that. In that one statement, it's an open and closed case because no one can dispute this. No one, this is not up for debate as we've seen last time. This is not something that's, that's open for debate and at this point, it's at this point I think that his ability to discern reaches its high point right, there, right here. He becomes so familiar with their antics that he just rushes to the very thing that's beyond all doubt and that no one can contradict. That is, the work of Jesus has had a profound effect upon him that is irrefutable, beyond the abilities of the religious elite to mimic, beyond the abilities of the religious elite to argue about. The more the Christian grasps the realities that they've come into, the more acute their abilities will be to recognize the things that contradict them, and even what the cheap and phony counterfeits are to them. Experiencing the work of Christ, uh, the giving of the new life, uh, the new mind, the, the new heart, uh, will eventually be able to identify what's hostile to the Christian confession like this man does here. Now, no one is ever going to be able to do this perfectly, of course, but by the Lord's provision, we come to know the heart of the great shepherd, which is to say that the things of God start to become somewhat second nature, to us, we start to know what the, what the will of the Lord is and also what it is not. And that's the essence of the rest of the man's conversation uh, to the Pharisees. He eventually becomes so familiar with the things of Christ that he's given the boldness uh, to challenge the, orig- the, the religious elite. Uh, verse 27 Do you also want to become his disciples? Now, what's the subtext there? Let's see what he's, what he's saying? He is a disciple of Jesus, and he professes his discipleship to the Lord Jesus, to the very people who will murder the Lord Jesus just a few months from now. And verse 34 through 33 is the longest thing that this man says, the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God he does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world has began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The, the longest thing that this man says in this entire chapter is a resounding rebuke to the religious elite. What growth do we see here? Uh, What boldness do we see here? What courage, uh, what strength is shown here that outstrips literally every every other person in this entire chapter? All shown from what he says. But I'd like to jump over to verse 35, because this really is where his words come to a crescendo and even to a full stop. Uh, Jesus says to the man, "'Do you believe in the Son of Man?' He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And this is where his words correspond most purely to the man's actions. His, here his words culminate so that he does the very thing that he always wanted to do from the very first uh, outset and the, the, that we see him in the chapter. Uh, the very one who's he's been testifying to this entire chapter is now right in front of him. And what's his final and most proper uh, response to now the person who's uh, right in front of him? Astonishment, silence, worship. He worships because if nothing else, the Christian is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of Man, which is a title of deity. Uh, It's an acclamation that Jesus is God. He is divine. He is God. And to him is, is due both worship and service. The Christian is the one who stands at the ready to bow to the Lord Jesus at his feet and worship. The Christian is one whose words testify, even though imperfectly, to the grace that's theirs in Christ. Just like this man here, we develop, we grow, we walk by the Spirit, we make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires, we're crucified with Christ, we're, uh, we put off the old self, we put on the new self, being transformed in, uh, in, in knowledge and the image of its creator uh, we're being transformed from one degree of glory into another. We grow, we develop like we see this man does in this chapter. We've seen tonight that the statements of this formerly blind man illustrate his development in the things of following Jesus. And I want to leave you with a couple applications tonight as we close. Firstly, know that you are still on a development trajectory in Christ. Know that you are still on a development trajectory in Christ. So long as you're here, that is, so long as you are in the body, so long as you are here, you confess that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, rest assured, something that he's doing with you. You be sure of that. Uh, There's something that he's doing with you. You won't be uh, perfect in this age, uh, but we toil with all the energy that he powerfully works within us. We ebb, Uh, We flow, we grow, we shrink back, we take two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes we take uh, one step forward and two steps back, right? Uh, But so far as we are in the body, we press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ. In a few minutes, we're going to be singing the hymn, Amazing Grace. It's a classic hymn, perhaps one of the best known of the hymns, but think of the words of the hymn. Perhaps you've never seen this before that it highlights the entirety of the Christian experience. From verse 1, saving a wretch like me, all the way over in the last verse, to having no less days to sing God's praise in the heavens when we've been there for 10,000 years. Perhaps that's the very first time that anybody has shown that to you. We go from infancy in Christ to being with Christ in the heavenlies in that song. So trust in the Lord that you are still on a development trajectory in Christ. Secondly, mind your words and use them to the glory of Christ. Mind your words and use them to the glory of Christ. We've uh, been looking at this man's words for the sermon, comparing them to the Christian life. Uh, the use of your words is going to in some way indicate where you are in your development, in your growth and grace in Christ. So how do you speak to others? How do you treat others? Uh, Do you speak of Christ? Uh, Do you um, make things known, the things of God known, in your words, and your actions? Do you make plain, do you make his work plain to others by what you do and how you say it? Is it a taxing thing? Is it an unusual thing to discuss the things of God with others? Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 34 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The point he's making in that passage is that in some sense, your words, what you say, reflects your heart. It'll indicate the legitimacy or the consistency of your intentions. And from what the Bible says about the heart... There's a study going on right now on Monday nights on the heart. We know that this backs up further into our thoughts as well. I say this because words serve one purpose, to convey thoughts. So in that same passage in Matthew Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, he also says that on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And let's just say that the American Christian culture nowadays fosters many careless words about God and each other. And I think it's because it fosters many careless thoughts about God and each other. Words convey thoughts, and God knows your thoughts. So what do you do? You fill your thoughts with the things of Christ. That's what you do. And what's going to happen is that your words are just simply going to follow suit. You can't have God-honoring lips with a mind that's empty of his goodness and majesty. So mind your words and use them to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you've given to us.